Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student. Two students with me here today. You've met all of them formally, except for Rhett. Rhett, how about uh, you do an introduction of yourself? Sure, so I'm Rhett Dotson, third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Um, super interested in psychiatry as a potential specialty. Um, I have a couple of other things in mind, but that's the beauty of third year. We get to uh, experience uh, many aspects of medicine and then make a decision. Good to have you here, and uh, interesting topic. I'll have you introduce it after Angelo introduces himself again. Yes, I'm Angelo Garcia. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And your last day, guys. Yes. We'll do uh, an evaluation on your rotation after we finish this podcast up, and then you'll tie up loose ends here, and uh, off to your next rotations. Where do you go next, Angelo? Um, I go to a family health medical rotation just up in Pleasant Grove. That sounds like a lot of fun. And Rhett? And I am going to be um, rotating with a general surgery practice, uh, but I believe the surgeon I'm with specializes in plastics. So, should be fascinating. The surgeons are such talented, uh, talented physicians. They do things that permanently improve the quality of life of people, and, and that's something that most physicians aren't able to do, is permanently change the outcome of something without continued follow-up care. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We are, yeah. <laughs> so you came to me with the idea of psychedelics as a way to treat PTSD. We did an introductory discussion about PTSD itself not long ago. And now we're going to go down the rabbit hole. Tell me yes. how this... And, and uh, apologies to Lewis Carroll. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's what his story was about. <laughs> Uh, that, as one author said, it may speak more to the people talking about that than it does about Lewis Carroll when they, they think about this. But down the rabbit hole, figuratively, and uh, yeah. it's it's especially applicable. Yeah, especially I think, applicable. I think. How did you come to this topic? Where where did this come from? Okay, so the the very brief history of this is like almost all children of my generation. I had a police officer come to my school when I believe I was still in elementary school, and he was called the Dare Officer, and he told us all about how bad drugs were. Um, because of my upbringing, uh, and because of how terrifying he made it, uh, drugs never really figured into uh, my own personal life. But what happened was, as an adult, it was really interesting going all the way into my 20s, maybe even into my 30s, when I began to realize, you know, he may have been exaggerating a little bit on some of this stuff. And and the last thing we want to do is to minimize the harmful impacts of um, illegal substances, because we see it here at this hospital every day. Um, but there was just kind of this idea of like, you know, they weren't entirely accurate. Uh, and that made me curious. And I began to see research coming out about using some of these substances that I've been told were so horrible. And, and, and we're gonna get to that. Sometimes potentially they really are so horrible. Um, but in fact, some of these psychedelics may have therapeutic benefits um, and those therapeutic ideas and potentials perhaps even predated the, uh, as a matter of fact, they did predate the recreational use um, that ended up getting these, these drugs put on the class one schedule. So let me see if I understand this. Somebody told you it's bad, and so you wanted to know more about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there's your psychology for today. Yeah. Uh, not exactly. I know there's more to the story than that. Um, so I want to go back uh, 6,000 years, roughly. Okay. Who is using peyote mescaline at this time? 
Yeah, so apparently, as, as I've just learned, it, it was prevalent potentially throughout the Americas. Um, yeah, that I was, uh, believe, as far south as the Rio Grande. Um, Trans-Texas, I think, is what I read. Okay. Um, at least in the area where peyote and mescaline are um, grown, yeah. growing naturally. Kind of that endogenous area. Uh-huh. Um, and now let's jump to the 50s, Albert Hoffman. Tell me about Albert Hoffman. Yeah, so Albert Hoffman, I believe as early as 1943, began to uh, take an interest in psilocybin. Um, and he came up with a synthetic ergot called LSD, um, which, of course, to begin with, had no negative connotations. It was simply a drug. Um, and it leaked out uh, to uh, certain institutions um, who began to use it per with particular interest in psychopharm applications. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's kind of how that started. I, I believe Albert Hoffman indulged himself um, and uh, so he documented some of those early effects, the hallucinogenic effects, mm -hmm. um, and, and tracked that closely throughout his life. So, so now I understand that uh, Hoffman's kind of an interesting guy because it's it's not often that you find two really well-known drugs, right? And he yeah. found both LSD and psilocybin. He identified psilocybin. He made LSD. Correct. Um, and I, it sounds like he was looking for headache medications at the time. Yeah, which is interesting because one of the major side effects of LSD turns out to be headaches. Um, but he was on that track. Yeah. So psychedelic word means uh, make manifest, reveal the mind, soul, and spirit. This is a Greek word that's been borrowed. And it seems like when we talk about the intoxication of uh, the psychedelic drugs, the hallucinogens, this is the description, right? People talk about having what is maybe a spiritual event. They do, and, and I think we're going to get to this soon, but the, the promise, whether it's false or true, I think remains to be seen. The promise of psychedelic drugs is, what if I can administer something once, twice, three times to my patient and, and have a lasting impact on a serious psychiatric illness? Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of that idea goes back to uh, at least it's related to um, the, this idea that there's a spiritual element um, to taking these drugs. Obviously, we know like peyote was very important to a number of indigenous cultures. Um, and just contemporary reports of people who've taken the drugs and said, you know, I've never quite been the same. And they mean it in a good way sometimes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. If I can chime in, um, I'm part Peruvian. My mother was Peruvian, or she was from Lima, the capital. So um, she wasn't um, Indian, so she was, you know, a mix of Spanish and Indian. But basically, she, you know, they always told the stories of the Indian shamans in the mountains region, or in the mountainous regions, or in the forested regions, you know, using ayahuasca, another hallucinogen, if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, that having very spiritual, you know, connotations and uses for it. Yeah. The word, so, so I'm, I'm going to go back to the history for a moment longer. Uh, 
because I, I want to come back to this this experience and the description. So before the D.A.R.E. officer was coming to your school and talking about the dangers of this medication, yeah. there were a lot of people that were very interested in seeing how this might be used to change the outcomes for people to be uh, able to be more successful at uh, keeping their jobs, staying off substances of misuse, having relationships, living a life that, that maybe is more meaningful or more intended on the, on the part of the person that would be treated. Correct. And, um, they were even talking about maybe two different uses, as I understand the history. This is coming out of the Chi and the Gold article, Chi and Gold. And they talked about psycho psycholytic, so you have this low dose of uh, hallucinogen, and you do psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which is something along the lines of what Freud would do. Right. Or maybe you have a psychedelic uh, treatment, and it's this high dose, few sessions. Everybody's playing around with this. Yeah. Right, so NIMH is playing around with this during the 50s and 60s. Big Pharma is playing around with this. Intelligence agencies are playing around with this drug. Famously, yeah. We, we know that the CIA was investigating the use of um, LSD. I didn't know that. Yeah. So what were they doing with it? Any ideas? Um, I believe they were trying to use it potentially even as a truth serum. Mm. Um, and there, there are... I think unsubstantiated reports that they were even investigating uh, potentially um, mind reading type applications. Interesting. Um, yeah, so uh, they, they seem to be open minded about it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and then it starts leaking out. Yes. It starts moving from um, an experimental area 40,000 experimental LSD sessions, 5,000 people, subjects involved in these that. Chi and Gold were able to account for um, an article we looked at later, sort of a like a more like a newsprint or a Times kind of article, a Newsweek kind of article. Yeah. You know, makes it sound like there are a couple of physicians maybe that have a thousand patients themselves that they've worked with. So, right. so maybe even much more than this number. Um, and it leaked out of, uh, I believe, it leaked out of Harvard, and um, that hits a personal note. Having lived in Cambridge, I can tell you. Uh, I believe it's still leaking out somehow. <laughs> a very pervasive drug in that area. Yeah. So it leaks out, and uh, these trips, that's what it's called when somebody is using acid, uh, or maybe even most hallucinogens, this period of enhanced awareness um, of your external, internal stimuli, yeah. uh, thoughts. Um, but then, for some people, frank panic or even yeah. psychosis and at least some events with frank panic and maybe psychosis had bad outcomes. And I didn't see a lot of data about the bad outcomes, but it clearly affected the country as a whole because there's legislation in 1970, 71. I believe it was right at 1970, yeah. And I think that there were a couple of reports and it may have been an unfortunate circumstance of just being swept up into the general um, law and order um, anti-drug, drug prohibition movement that Richard Nixon um, was really leading at the time. Um, and, and whether it was fortunate or unfortunate actually is, is maybe more up to debate, but I think that's uh, a part culturally of what happened. And, and we see that even today where a lot of these trials use psilocybin, 
they'll mm-hmm. use DMT. They'll not use LSD as much because um, that cultural stigma still applies. Very difficult to get research money for LSD. <laughs> yeah. As I understood uh, from the, I think it was the Chi and the Gold article, uh, they individual foundations cropped up. Right from very wealthy donors that were interested in seeing where the science could go. And then with individual donors and a lot of money backing them, uh, these organizations were able to start doing some research with better um, better scientific processes or better yes. methods. And then what happens? Uh, so as early as the 1980s, we finally get some like institutional board review going on. Um, and small, small studies start to happen. Uh, within the last decade or two, that has really expanded. There's an organization called MAPS, um, which I believe may be one of the organizations you're referring to. Yeah. Um, and they have, in particular, found some pretty compelling stuff with MDMA use in combination with therapy for PTSD. So we can talk about that. Um, even there, like their initial study on, on the MDMA was, I think, 12 people. They did a phase two, which got up to maybe 120 or 180 people. Um, so one problem that I ran into over and over again is we don't have large-scale studies here. A lot of the studies were done on cancer patients with comorbid depression. Um, as you say, it's difficult to talk to someone and say, I want to give you LSD. I want to give you ecstasy. Um, I want to give your mother LSD. Um, that's just (laughs) somehow that's not going over And, and I guess with the grant approvals, uh, not working out as well either. So the substance act of 1970 said there is no medical use for, for LSD. Right. It's not safe under supervision which is the model that these studies are done, right? Somebody goes into a very uh, warm environment. Two people are there to help make sure that the trip goes well. And it lasts somewhere around, what, uh, eight? Eight to 12 hours. They usually spend the night and are very closely supervised. And it also said high potential for abuse. So as you can imagine, the government shut off the funding. And now we have groups that are now different than the pharmaceutical companies, different than uh, the research institutions and the university systems that are getting K grants and so forth. We now have this completely private stream of funding. They're starting to do research and the quality of the research is improving and maybe UCLA, um, who else? Uh, University of New Mexico and... uh, Yes. And not Harvard at this point, is it? Uh, actually, I did see there was a combo study with BU and Harvard. So so these three universities seem to be yeah. now picking this up again and yeah. starting to do some research. We looked at a number of studies and reviews of studies that seem to largely be proof of concept studies. Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think what, what we saw a lot of was, is this safe? Um, and I think they demonstrated that at, at certain doses... Uh, a lot of these drugs appear under supervision to be safe. Um, but again, the, the, the thing that frustrated me a little bit is just the small sample sizes. 
the really limited natures of the studies and and understanding all the restrictions that we just talked about you know of course that's that's kind of how it is but I'm hoping, particularly with some of the, the progress they're making on, say, MDMA combined with psychotherapy, um, I'd hope to see that expand a little bit. Um, you know, I, I understand there have been so many drugs that have come along and, and that have shown promise and then not panned out, um, but it just feels to me like it'd be great to keep barking up this tree until we find out um, if, if we have something up there or not. Psilocybin, for example, um, small studies, looks like it might work for cancer patients. Again, right, this is the only place that you can get these to work easily. And it seems to help lift people out of depression that they're experiencing and have a kind of a better go at their cancer treatment. That's kind of the way I took it. And it seemed like there were a handful of studies for every drug exactly. that was sort of like that. And, and sometimes it looked like maybe it made a difference and sometimes it didn't. Again, very, yeah. very underpowered studies um, to have any conclusions one way or the other. And they talked about a few of the limitations of these studies, which I actually found interesting. On a number of the studies, a prerequisite for participation was prior exposure to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, and one can reasonably infer then that, that it wouldn't be hard to imagine that people had a... Uh, a positive kind of outlook uh, compared to the general public if yeah. they'd gone ahead and taken that step of using those recreationally previously. Yeah, I, I did notice that, that most of these studies had that requirement. I want to switch gears now. We've talked a little bit about, hey, there's data out there it's starting to emerge. There's There are groups that are starting to study this. There is a lot of interest in this. It looks like it's making a transition from a group of people that are um, very passionate about hallucinogens yep. to people that are passionate about the science yes. of treatments and and that that might be a subtle change but it seems to make it easier for me to look yeah. at it and go okay I see this is going to a place well that's what we need I mean we need it yeah. and you know what the hope always you know I'm still a naive third-year medical student so my hope is that every trial out there is rooted in science and let's see what happens and report the data and the truth is that this is a political issue this is a controversial issue and so to think that none of that comes into play with some of these private groups etc um, that, that could potentially be a little bit naive um, so good to see universities um, and uh, big-time researchers taking this up and yeah yeah I, I like that too mechanism of action okay so we have psychedelics um, generally uh, substances that fall under the psychedelic category. So we're talking LSD, psilocybin, DMT, um, mescaline. Uh, these are in a variety of ways going to be 5-HT agonists, five, uh, often 5-HT2A agonists. Um, so that's that's the activity that they will have. And they, I, I believe that a number of them act in a different way to achieve that effect, but um, it seems like that kind of serotonergic um, um, end pathway is what leads to a group of substances that really are just based on what they do. They make you see things and feel things uh, when you take a, a large dose. The way I read this is very similar. You left out MDMA. Because it's 
it's kind different. Of very slightly different. It's very yeah. It yeah. seems to be different. The other yeah. the other uh, are more serotonin like, so yes. to speak, if we're using a big grouping, and that five HT two A agonism is the exact opposite of one of the medications we use in treatment of patients with uh, Parkinson's Parkinsonism symptoms. Yes. Who have hallucinations or diffuse Lewy body with hallucinations, right? So the treatment of those hallucinations is treated with uh, pimavanserin, okay. which is a 5-HT2A antagonist. Right. There are a number of researchers that notice that there are some overlaps between the use of LSD and schizophrenia. Yes. That's not something I've heard that much before. I've heard, well, yeah, you have hallucinations, but it's a totally different experience. Yeah. The researchers, the, the things I read were saying more along the lines of, no, this looks a lot more like schizophrenia than you might imagine sometimes. And uh, I believe there was uh, an animal study going way back that showed low-dose chronic administration of LSD um, gave a flattening of affect, a sociality, um, a number of symptoms when combined kind of made these animals look schizophrenic, yeah. Like they had schizophrenia, yes. Yes. Um, yes. So, um, yeah, that's that was one of the things that really surprised me is we, we've looked at uh, glutamate models, we've looked at dopamine models, but this seems to be different, and it's not entirely clear to me you know, what, what role this has, even though we have borrowed, I wonder if we've borrowed from this to have this 5-HT2 a antagonist, pimavanserin, is one of the treatments in the armamentarium for uh, hallucinations. Right. Yes, very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Uh, MDMA is uh, a phenylalkylamine, if I remember right. So it, it seems to be a little bit more like the discussion that we had with Cam uh, within the last few weeks about yeah. bath salts, where it had activity that uh, appeared to be more... Uh, dopamine uh, transporter and norepinephrine transporter and maybe serotonin transporter, but different kinds of ratios than, you know, again, yeah. kind of juggling those uh, that, that activity at each receptor. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this was a case of pump reversal or not, but what I read did seem to indicate that, that there was some agonism um, mm -hmm. in these molecules. Um, and I believe you can correct me here because this may not be correct, but I believe MDMA is like a methamphetamine derivative. Um, that does sound right to me, yeah. Yeah, so, but of course we know that um, phenotypical is not the right word, but symptomatically what, what it does to patients is quite different than, than methamphetamine, as you say, perhaps due to the balancing of, of the neurotransmitters. One of the things I think I remember reading was that uh, MDMA may be neurotoxic. Yes. Yeah, so there was some interesting research done into that, um, and I believe it even involved, um, I don't know if you want to call it like auditory sensory gating, but there was some kind of where they would play a loud sound and then see how the brain handled that, and potentially with larger doses of MDMA, they were worried that um, there could be less attenuation of the loud sounds. And there has been some research into memory. Um, that's another another potential neurotoxicity effect that, that they're worried about. It seemed like the data was um, 
trending that way without yeah. finality. Yeah. I was intrigued. It also seemed like there was something that I understood. We think about MDMA, MDMA as a rave drug. Yes. So uh, loud music, dancing, and parties, right? Yep. And, and what I thought I understood was that there was something about the way auditory processing changed that initial uh. music listening so that it may not have been as neurotoxic, uh, as ototoxic maybe. Okay. So, so there might be some other reasons why it's a rave drug. And yeah. I, I, I don't know that yet. I was wondering if you had come across anything that hinted at that. You know, I didn't. Now that you, you talk about that, it makes sense given some of the research on, on auditory effects. Um, we do know, uh, I believe when they initially synthesized it, they wanted to call it like instead of ecstasy, em empathy, or something like that. Uh, so we know that a lot of the effects, uh, there is a uh, warming of affect, and uh, definitely um, makes you more social, uh, and potentially more sexual. I, I had to laugh when I read that the distributors, they, the mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, Chi and Gold referred to the people who are selling uh, MDMA, through surreptitious channels as distributors. I think yeah. was the way they were saying that. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure I know that for sure, but I wondered if that was what they were saying. And, and of course, em empathy just doesn't sound the same as ecstasy, does it? Yeah, I, I, think that, um, I think that I agree with their branding decision, if that's what it came down to. Um. <laughs> Wait, did that that did not make it sound like I was approving of for the recreational use of MDMA? Which no, for no. the record, we do not. We're, yeah, we're not. We're 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 not uh, trying to promote. I think that's a good thing to say. Promote use of any of these substances at this point. I think what we're trying to promote is an understanding of why researchers might be going yeah. down this pathway, and I think we're also. Uh, in a sense, we're talking about how difficult PTSD is to treat, right? Because this was the original focus. Um, you found some uh, research that was looking at treatment of PTSD with psychedelic drugs, and the, the reality is PTSD treatment is very, very difficult. It's tough. There have been some good psychotherapies that have made progress, um, but it is a devastating disease. I think that there's enough people out there uh, does this sound right? Are there six million Americans affected by PTSD? I'm not sure, but I believe that's the number that I saw. You know someone who's affected by PTSD more than likely. Yeah, you, you do. Um, if it's not yourself. So this is a tough drug, tough to treat. And to me, that was, you know, uh, I know I talked about the terror officer. I could have just as easily mentioned, um, I know people affected by PTSD. I know people who are treatment resistant sufferers. Um, who have PTSD. And yeah. so the idea of finding something that can help those people is, is I think, really um, attractive. The best anecdotal data for the effect of, of the psychedelics is for substance misuse. Yes. I, I didn't see as much with PTSD, but it's for substance. I'm going to come back to PTSD, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, some doctor, uh, Dr. Osmond. Okay. Practicing in Saskatchewan? Yes, the Saskatchewan study, yeah. Uh, this guy gives this uh, LSD in the 50s and 60s to 1,000 people. Over 1,000 people. And dramatic changes in their lives. So these are people who, I imagine, living in the North Woods, uh, <laughs> may uh, turn to the bottle uh, for reprieve. 
And uh, so he found people who, who suffered uh, with alcohol misuse. And he found amazing results by treating them with PTSD, um, based on his reports. Treat, treating them with uh, uh, I'm so LSD. Sorry, with LSD. I'm yeah. My SD's mixed up. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So, so he went around administering LSD. And, and yeah, this does go back all the way to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and ongoing studies today. And I think that if we were going to rate the evidence, so far the best evidence that you can use psychedelics to meaningfully change behavior uh, is actually in the realm of addiction. I have never thought about this before. I, I've never been willing to accept this before. Sure. Um, but there's this, this uh, question. Why would something that is potentially addictive be anti-addictive? Yeah. And why does one experience, so um, Osmond and many other people are using... You know, the, the original idea that we talked about of psychedelic high-dose few sessions. Yep. Why does one event, one experience, change a life? I, I had a tough time believing this for a treatment. Yeah. Until I saw something else. What are your thoughts about these things, these questions? Well, these intrigue me as much as anything. Um, it's just not the model of behavior change that we have right now. P people don't snap of a finger, you know, I was this, now I'm that. A lot of times these are kind of archetypical stories that we tell. Um, they're inspiring, but that's just not how behavior change is lived. And typically it's not how we see it as practitioners whatsoever. Um, so the idea that instead of a chronic medication, a ongoing um, medication, that I could give you a substance two or three times uh, and make a real difference. I found that fascinating. And, and there are a number of anecdotal accounts of people describing um, what they say is a spiritual experience with some of these substances. Mm -hmm. And I found that really fascinating. The, the idea that you could induce a sort of road to Damascus type experience and reverse behavior. Um, yeah, that's intriguing. I couldn't buy it until... I read the analogy that PTSD changes our lives with one event. Yeah. And if you had the anti-PSD, PTSD, yeah. if you had an experience that was so overwhelmingly positive that connected you with the people around you in a way that is unfathomable, yes, much like the trauma that causes PTSD is unfathomable, then why not? Yeah. Why not indeed? And and honestly, I my takeaway uh, to this point of the conversation is I'm glad this research is going on. And I'm glad that hopefully it's being done by researchers at big name academic institutions in a safe way. Um, but there's promise there. And uh, I'd love to see where, where this pans out. A couple of other things. Um, again, this one of the challenges with the data is it's hard to get approval. It's hard to get IRB. You basically have to be in a hopeless situation to be able to use this, uh, this, uh, these protocols, these substances. So, so maybe um, a little patience seeing where this goes is very reasonable as well. If the only place we can test this is where everything else has failed, 
it may not behoove us to be too hasty in, yeah. in dumping it, even though I think to this point, I'm not convinced about very much other than uh, there's good anecdotal data for stopping substance misuse and across the board, right? Smoking, uh, alcohol, opioids. There seems to be uh, some data that people that have used um, hallucinogens before they got addicted to opioids yes. seem to have a better outcome. A compelling, I think it was uh, came out of HMS and BU study, uh, showed that yeah, if, if you were concurrently or previously using uh, psychedelics, um, there was a protective factor there against addiction. And that was a question that you'd asked earlier, Dr. Roundy, the idea of, okay, how does a class or a schedule one substance um, prevent addiction? Well, you know, and, and this is me thinking off the top of my head, I haven't met too many LSD addicts in my life. And I'm not saying they don't exist, but compared to how many people do I know who are addicted to nicotine, how many people do I know who are addicted to opioids? Yes, I know people who are addicted to opioids. How many people who are uh, misuse alcohol? Um, so it could just be that it, it's a little bit less addictive, and that given under supervision, maybe it maybe it can help. Yeah, as opposed to leaking out and having people yes. start using it. Right there, there might be a difference. Which was the whole problem in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we'll link the article you shared with me, the uh, the news article, like the, the Newsweek-style article from Psychological Times. Is that what it is? Uh, yep, Psychology Today. Psychology Today. Um, this article was really fascinating. I think it gave a great history. I think a, a, all of the articles we read gave a different viewpoint on the history. I enjoyed that very much. This is a very good summary of that. I, I assume that it's freely available on the Internet. If it is, we'll link it in. I believe so, yeah. And... Uh, and read about Jason, who was effortlessly abstinent from alcohol. Yeah. That was uh, just an amazing phrase to me. I do hope that we find that this also is something that can be used in PTSD. Yes. I think originally you and I were hoping that this would be a discussion about treatment of PTSD with, uh, with hallucinogens. Just not, just not a lot of data out there. There yet. really isn't much data. There's, we talked about that MAPS group, and they've done some research that over 100 people, and in this field right now, a trial with over 100 people is enormous. It's a monster, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a monster. So, And, and they did show that 54% uh, of people achieved remission um, versus a much lower percentage on placebo. Um, but yeah, again, there's, there's limitations to this research. One that I found that I found kind of interesting, the staff correctly could guess 97% of people who were on the active substance. Um, so the idea of trying to do a double blind RCT on a psychedelic substance, it's a little bit tough. It, it, really it difficult. Seems like people tend to know if they're hallucinating or not. Yeah, I saw that. I, I, I just thought, yeah, that makes it even more challenging. Yeah, tough. Why do we have flashbacks? I don't know the answer to that, and I didn't see anything about that. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't see that either. So I, I would have loved to have got more into the acid flashbacks and um, some of those things. Uh, I don't know. I know that in these controlled doses, they didn't see hardly anything to that effect. I believe out of many, many patients, they had one patient who had some sort of a anxiety condition coming out of his use of LSD, um, which resolved with treatment, but I didn't see anything about the 
yeah. those flashbacks. I think that was uh, a couple of months, right? Generally, yeah. they talk about the effects. The negative effects usually last about two, three weeks. So, so it's not, yeah. you, you don't pop out of this right away and say, okay, no. let's go. I've got this. Uh, it seems like, you know, the, the headaches and maybe some, some emotional stuff lasts a little but bit longer. Than there, there is a reason beyond just Richard Nixon, I believe, why these are class one or schedule one substances. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the homicides associated with the use. Um, last question. Tell me the difference between an intactogen and an empathogen. <laughs> okay, so... And, and if you'd like, I can set the table for this. Uh, okay, so I wrote it down as enactogen. Is it intactogen? Intactogen, okay, yes. Intactogen. That's, that is my dyslexia coming out. Um, and intactogen is the category that MDMA is in, I believe. Um, and so you may need to fill this in uh, because... I don't even know which category and pathogen is. So I, I think uh, this is uh, one of those terrible questions that an yeah. attending asks because there's not a right answer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, is that where they're debating the name? Yeah, this okay. is. So, so I, I ended up at the MAPS website yeah. um, going down the rabbit hole, yeah. uh, looking at the difference about the fight over the name, right? The branding of these substances. Okay. and. The distributors used ecstasy for their reasons, but the yes. branding fight on this level is if we call these in pathogens, it has pathogen in the middle of the name, right? So yeah. even though it's a, a substance that seems to dramatically change the way that people feel empathy, uh, the MAPS organization would prefer intactogen. And I didn't look up what intactogen means. I wondered if if you had at some point, you know, uh, I, I yeah, I didn't get off into that uh, that that sidetrack uh, quite yet. There was there was so much to dive into on this subject. I found myself just reading for hours and hours and could go in almost any direction. I think it's sometimes I I feel like I look at a substance yeah. that is being studied or being sold or being. Um, promoted, maybe is another way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. And it it treats anything that ails you, right? It, it's good for what ails you. It's like uh, snake oil. Yeah, is, the panacea. It, it fixes, yeah, oh, you got some problems with uh, liver spots? Yeah, this will fix that. Oh, you got some problems with your hair? Yeah, this will fix that. And I don't feel like that's what this research is. I think this is very targeted research at this point. Yeah very, very focused now for maybe 50, 60 years now yeah. on uh, on addiction yes. in a way that I really just wasn't aware of before this. Yeah, agreed. And, and I actually had the same concern coming into it, which was um, we are in the midst of the broad legalization of marijuana right now. And there is a culture that, that um, a subculture that is becoming mainstream now of drugs are great <laughs> like <laughs> these things are fantastic and it kind of feeds into the naturalistic subset of people and uh, which is really ironic given the synthetic nature of some of these substances but um i had that same concern which was 
is this snake oil? Is this is this people just getting really excited because there's something that's a little bit naughty and and maybe actually it could be good? Um, but there's good solid research. There there's people out here there who are, are trying to help folks, um, and and I was was um, pleased to see that. Yeah, I think even though this was originally a PTSD topic, I th I think at some point in the future the biochemistry of this will lead us down a pathway of addiction yeah. and dependence and substance misuse. Um, and and I, I use the word addiction cautiously because I think we're now using the words substance misuse more. Yeah. Uh, and dependence, substance dependence is also now a DSM ago and we're, we're moving out of that. But the biochemical processes that lead people to continued use despite you know, the, the problems associated with that use, the, the erosion of their ability to maintain a job, a family, relationships, the, the constant looking for that next you know, dose of a substance at a higher dose, development of tolerance, all those kinds of things, right? The, we, those, those things destroy lives in ways that are difficult to imagine until you watch somebody go through that. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, I sincerely hope we find not only treatments for PTSD in this, but also in substance misuse. And why that would happen, I think is still pretty mysterious to everybody. Yeah, yeah, there's, I, I didn't see like a good explanation for how this is, besides literally appealing to the spiritual, um, yeah. which, which, you know, a lot of people would say is appealing to that which we don't understand yet. Um, but I, I found that super fascinating, um, and I hope hope it does. Something that I didn't know about that uh, I came across, and, and of course I, I would have to see this again to, to be sure that I actually got this correct. Bill W., who started AA, yes. uh, was a guy that uh, had what might be con might be viewed as a spiritual experience when he hit rock bottom. Yes. Um, he was going through DTs potentially, but also was given a belladonna alkaloid. Yeah, so he had, so that's atropine, right? Uh, could have been. I think it could have been a couple of okay. other substances. I don't, I don't remember the but exact. But yeah, they were given, Bella, gave him belladonna while he was in the midst potentially of hallucinations of detox, yeah. during DT. And he had this spiritual experience. That's why light that came through the, the window. Right. And he changed after that. He did. And so, so the question is, obviously, is it something psychological that's changing leading to these events? Is it something biological that's changing leading to these no. events? There was uh, one study that suggested that there's communication between parts of the brain that normally don't communicate yep. on functional imaging, and, and maybe that's it. Setting all of that aside, Bill W., who said, hey, addictions are bad, don't touch anything, don't use anything, and AA, which has held that posture, yep. Bill W. was saying, no, we should include LSD, and this is something that helps people get clean and sober, and I, I thought that was fascinating. Totally, and, and later in his life, he actually used LSD uh, to treat his own depression. Um, so I, I don't know how that may or may not have worked out, but he, he believed in it, and there is something about a spiritual experience um, that can be transformative for people. An article I saw went all the way back to William James, who wrote the... Yeah, the book um, I can't remember, but something about the nature of spiritual experience. Yeah, um, a really fascinating book. And in his day, the treatment for uh, alcohol misuse was uh, pray, 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 pray until you have this spiritual experience. Um, so there's a history of it. There's a long history of it, and we totally don't understand it, but we know that it works for some people. And uh, again, find that very intriguing.
Yeah, me too. I think uh, we've exhausted every interesting uh, rabbit hole that I found. I think so. Anything that you, anything, uh, Angela, that you want to add before we stop? Um, I guess future research. I'm looking forward to looking more into that and seeing what they come up with. I'm guessing probably altering doses is the first thing they'll probably use to, you know, determine different effects of each of those drugs because yeah. the dose does make the poison or the drug. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Rhett? Um, yeah, final kind of wrap-up for me is I'm glad that there is legitimate research on these topics going on. And for many decades there weren't. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. I think that may have set us behind a little bit. Um, but now it's happening, and we're just going to go wherever the data takes us. And uh, I'm hopeful that the data takes us to a place that, that helps people to feel better. The other thing I'm going to ask for in my hopes is that we have a good way to uh, limit, I guess anybody can really get their hands on LSD if they want to, but I, I, I feel like uh, there's pretty good evidence that the opioid crisis was caused by, yeah. by um, there, there was an editorial that was cited and recited, I don't know, 50,000 times, is that the number? Wow. And it was then essentially became in the lexicon as proof that people don't become addicted to opioids when it's used to treat pain. Uh, I think I'm simplifying that, obviously. Yeah. Um, we also had some pharmaceutical companies that were um, probably not acting in good faith. Uh, it, it seems there's some evidence for that. I'm, I'm going to be very careful so that nobody sues me here. Um, but, but I would think that physicians have a role in the opioid crisis, and if we can find a way to minimize that, that's great, but I also want to be very careful that as we go about this research, that the proof of concept studies that are starting as we go down this pathway, that we're keeping track over the long run of what's happening, Yes. Um, and that we're very careful about maybe how we jump into the next substance that has been controlled, right? Yeah, please let's not be the cause of the psychedelic crisis. Um, yeah. That, that would be terrible. That would be terrible. Uh, on that note, guys, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, a good rotation is now behind you. Thank you so much. Team out. Team, Team out. out.